there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Would you be able to look at your own life and say, I am a peaceful person, I live a peaceful life. Our home is a peaceful place. Some of you can say yes to that, but I dare say that many of you wish you could. It's not something that comes naturally. It's one of the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace. And God is in the business of transforming us ordinary folks into saints. I love that hymn in the Episcopal hymn book. I've never heard it sung in any other church. I sing a song of the saints of God, faithful and brave and true, who fought and loved and lived and died for the Lord they loved and knew. One was a soldier and one was a queen and one was a shepherdess on the green. They were all of them saints of God, and I mean God helping to be one too. And I would hope that it is your aim in life to be a saint. But of course, there is no way that we can be instruments of peace or saints without what we talked about last night. Those of you who were here heard me talk about abandonment to self. It is not going to work if we find ourselves caught up in the modern notion of working on our self-image, building our self-esteem, actualizing ourselves. Tremendous confusion has been caused by this pop psychology. It has become like an insidious and infectious disease in Christian thinking. It has done a tremendous lot of damage. And I'm just trying to do everything I can to point us back to what Jesus says, which is, if you want to be my disciple, first thing you have to do is give up your right to yourself. And I cannot be giving up my right to myself and working on my self-image at the same time. It's one or the other. And as I said to someone who was talking to me this morning about this whole subject, um, if we concentrate our energies on God himself, on knowing God, he is going to reveal to us more than we can stand about ourselves. I love what the great German philosopher Goethe said, only God knows who I am, and may God preserve me from ever finding out. <laughs> and Mark Twain said, deep down in his heart, no man really respects himself. Now these were sensible men, wise men, and I hope that we can go back to some common sense on these things that have led us so far astray. But God wants to make us instruments of his peace, that we should be the living embodiment, the living, breathing, walking, working, loving, ordinary, down-to-earth folks who are instruments in the hands of God for the peace of the world. 
If Jesus Christ lives in me, then Jesus Christ's peace should be evident in me and should characterize my life, my home, my meeting of other people. For years, I've been talking and writing, and not very long ago, I tried to just put down on one little piece of paper the essentials that I'm always trying to get across. And I just want to read you the first bit of this. It is my earnest desire to be able to speak to all. It doesn't make any difference what the audience may be. But to speak to the suffering, to the peaceful, the contented, the anxious, those who are longing for God and those who are indifferent to God, those who are angry with God. To proclaim the good news, God loves you. I'm told that the great theologian Karl Barth was asked if he could summarize in a few words everything that he had written in his shelves of theological books. And he said, yes, I can. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. God loves you, which means that he wants nothing less than the best for you, which must always be his best for you. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. Nothing feeble or wishy-washy or sentimental. Remember that his was the love that went to the cross. Jesus loved his father to the point of self-sacrifice, self-abandonment, self-giving, self-donation, self-total leaving behind, the point of utter surrender, obedience to death. And ladies and gentlemen, it is this simple principle, this simple principle of surrender, of abandonment to ourselves, which can make a saint out of anybody. Self-abandonment can make a saint out of anybody. And it is meant to be a glad surrender. There's a book back there called Discipline, the Glad Surrender. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I dare say that there are a few other women in this room who are not born with a gentle, quiet, meek, submissive spirit. Is there anybody that was born with that kind of a spirit? May I see your hand? There's one lady down here, and she's the one that told me that she's really working pretty hard on some of these things. We're not born submissive, none of us. We're all born rebels. My brother tells me that when his little son was about four months old, he would lie in his crib and thrust his fist skyward, which my brother took to be a symbol of the fact that we are all born rebels. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to walk all over me. I'm going to do my own thing. Jesus didn't do his own thing. He said, the words I speak to you are the words that my Father has given me. The works that you see me do are the works that my Father has given me. I came not to glorify myself, but to glorify my Father. I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father. Will you follow me? That's what he says to us which means taking his yoke, learning meekness, which doesn't come naturally, and doing what he says. 
It's a simple principle, but the word simple doesn't mean easy, does it? There's a big difference between simple and easy. I know what God means when he says, submit yourselves to your husbands. I know what that means. You men know what God means when he says, lay down your life for your wife. Love your wife as Christ loved the church, which means sacrifice. We know what that means. But doing it, who would say it's easy? How are we going to become instruments of God's peace? Self-abandonment is the prerequisite. I gave you three points last night. I'll give you three this morning. He chooses the place, he furnishes the grace, and he transfigures life. Let's think about this choosing the place in which God qualifies us to be instruments of his peace. It was back in 1956 that my husband and four other missionaries were speared to death by a tribe called Alcas in the eastern jungle of Ecuador. They had gone in there after much preparation, months of dropping gifts from a plane to these people, hoping to reduce their hostility. We knew that they killed strangers. We knew that they were Stone Age people. They were totally naked. And we didn't really know anything else about them except that the people who had gone into their territory looking for oil and rubber and gold had never returned. So it was with a very deep consciousness of the risk, but also with a great deal of conviction that God was calling these men to take this risk because the command is go into all the world and preach the gospel, that these men went. And we wives were totally in accord with their going. But after what appeared to be a very friendly contact on a Friday afternoon, they were all speared to death on the following Sunday. Of course, we had no idea what had gone wrong. It took five days before we really knew that they were all dead. This was in the early days of television, which meant that the news shocked people. We can't be shocked every 30 minutes, every day, all day. And television has just become such a routine, and we're so used to seeing horror things coming into our living rooms every day that the impact would not be nearly so great now as it was back then. But for various reasons, I think one of them being the fact that television was so young was, uh, for various reasons, this word really just floored people. Also, the fact that people didn't realize there were still Stone Age people so close to the United States, only six hours in those days flight from Miami. I guess it's less than that now. And the shock that five apparently normal, ordinary American young men would go into a place like that. Were they crazy? Was it a stunt? Were they anthropologists? Were they looking for diamonds or what? And I got letters literally from all over the world, just hundreds of letters, perhaps a thousand or more. And of all the things that people wrote to comfort me, I think the most memorable and significant was the verses from 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. And these have become watchwords of my life. Our light and momentary affliction or troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. 
So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. Philip's translation says, these little troubles, which are really so transitory. Now Paul, the apostle, remember, he had some troubles that you and I would call pretty big. Things like being flogged and shipwrecked and imprisoned and naked and hungry. It's Paul that says this, these little troubles, which are really so transitory. And he speaks of this eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And I think the metaphor here is the old-fashioned kind of a scales with a sort of an arm across here and two pans suspended by chains. You put all the troubles of your life, which seem enormously heavy, on one side. If you look at them in the light of eternity, they're little troubles. Put them on one side and put this weight of glory that he speaks on about on the other side, and what will happen? These little troubles will look like feathers, and that weight of glory is beyond anything you and I can imagine. I think heaven is going to be so fabulous, so incredible, so wonderful beyond our wildest imaginings that God didn't give us more clues about what it's going to be like because we never would have been able to keep our minds on our work. You know, it would be like telling a little kid, we've got the Christmas presents up there in the, in the, in the closet, but we don't want you to look at them. You don't you just can't fathom it. So there it is. But I, I give you this illustration of the fact that here was one huge, tremendous trouble, a great disaster, the greatest sorrow that I could ever imagine. The man I had waited five and a half years to marry, and God had given us 27 months of marriage. We had a 10-month-old daughter. The word comes that he's dead, speared to death, in the course of obedience to God. What do we think of things like that? What do we make of them? Well, thank God I was raised in a home where we read missionary books, and we looked at missionary slides, and we went to missionary meetings, and we had missionaries sitting, by our, sitting at our dinner, dinner table hundreds of times. So it was not news to me that the price of cooperation in God's redemption of the world is very often total sacrifice. I mentioned last night a missionary to China named Betty Scott Stam, whom I had known personally, who was beheaded. Does God allow things like this to happen? Of course he does. Read the Bible. What about John the Baptist, that faithful forerunner, who was beheaded because of his faithfulness to speak the truth to a wicked king, and because of the foolish, frivolous request of an evil, adulterous woman who told her daughter to ask for John the Baptist's head. Would God allow his faithful servant to be killed in that way? He did. Would God allow Stephen to be stoned to death? He did. Would God allow his own son to be crucified? He did. This is the God who's got the whole world in his hands, you and me. And he says, will you give yourself to me? Will you give up your right to yourself, which the world would consider its most untouchable right, 
most unarguable right. Jesus says, will you give it to me? It's voluntary. It's a deliberate act. He will not invade our privacy or demand what we will not give. He asks, if you want to be my disciple, will you give up your right to yourself and take up your cross and follow me? I will make you an instrument of peace. Is that what you want? It's what I want. I want to be an instrument of God's peace. And it was when I was 12 that I made up my mind I didn't want anything else in life. The will of God. Just show me what to do, Lord, and help me to do it. You remember that little Jewish virgin, Mary. What was her response to the call of God? Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it happen as you say. Now it is God that chooses the place. Mary lived in a very humble home in a very nowheresville kind of a town, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Probably a teenage girl. Perhaps sweeping, weaving, cooking. We don't know what she was doing when that angel came in. But her instant response was a total self-abandonment. Here I am, Lord, do anything you want with me. I'm your handmaiden. And I found myself in that place of sorrow and a totally new assignment, which was widowhood. Is there any woman in the world that would choose widowhood? Is there any man in the world that would choose to be a widower? But we've asked for God's will, not ours. And why would God take a 28-year-old man like Jim Elliot, whose life had had a tremendous impact already, and allow him to be killed? Well, all five of those men, you know, were outstanding missionaries. One of the older missionaries in Ecuador said to me after they died, he said, why would God take the best we had? They were the cream of the cream. He said, I'm just an old man. I've been here 40 years. He said, I can't do anything. I'm not educated the way those guys were. He said, why didn't the Lord let me do that? God doesn't answer our whys, does he? He says, I want you to trust me. I know what I'm doing. Trust me. It is in this place where you are. And I don't know a soul in this room. I don't know where you are right now, emotionally, spiritually, physically, geographically. Presume you're somewhere in this area, most of you geographically, but whatever your circumstances, your context, it is there and nowhere else that God wants to begin this work of making you an instrument of his peace. God is the one who chooses the place. It is part of the process of shaping and honing a useful instrument. I expected to be a jungle missionary for the rest of my life. I was thrilled that God had called me to be a foreign missionary. I always thought foreign missionaries ought to live in the jungle and they ought to live under thatched roofs. And that's exactly what the Lord allowed me to do. I lived with three different Indian tribes in extremely remote areas. These Alka Indians had never seen a stranger, mind you. They had never seen an Indian of another tribe. 
when I went in there to live with those people, and that's too long a story to go into today. They'd never seen a stranger. But God had chosen the place, and God was working out his will in my life in a way that I could never in a million years have, ima have imagined. And it was because of Jim's death that I was precipitated into writing. And when you write a book, then people think you can talk. And you know, it, one thing leads to another. But anyway, I, all I'm saying is I, my idea was that God's place for me was to be a jungle missionary. I was there 11 years, but here I am today. Who would have ever imagined I'd be in a place like Christ Church in Gross Point, Michigan? God chooses the place. God knows how to hone the instrument, whatever it takes. And Paul uses the metaphor in Romans 8.28, uh, Romans 8.29, 8.28 says, everything that happens fits into his pattern for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is that we should be shaped to the image of his son. What does it take to shape an image? Hammer blows. The chipping of a chisel and the rasping of a file. And all of those are necessary. Well, of course, Jim's death was a hammer blow. Since then, there have been many chippings of the chisel. There have been quite a few hammer blows, too. But every day, there's the rasping of the file. You know, get those smooth, get those edges smoothed down, those rough corners rubbed off. The place where God has put you has unlimited possibilities. And someone has written, when I want to do only great things for you, make me willing to do small, unnoticed things too. When I want to do what the world will acclaim, make me willing to do what will lift up your name. God doesn't give very many people heroics. You and I are called to do small, unnoticed things most of the time. Sometimes people are envious of a person like me who is allowed to write books and travel around. One girl came up to me and she said, Mrs. Elliott, I'm just, I'm so excited because I think the Lord has called me to do exactly what you do. And I said, and what's that? And she said, oh, you write books and you speak and you travel around. It must be so exciting. Well, of course, if I were to total up the exact number of hours that I'm standing in front of an audience in any given year, it would certainly not come anywhere near close to the number of hours that I'm standing at the sink peeling onions or washing dishes or ironing clothes. The point I'm making is it doesn't make any difference whether what you're doing is noticed or unnoticed. Give it to God. Be an instrument in God's hands. Second thing, God gives us the grace. He furnishes the grace. Now, I always regarded the possible death of my husband, Jim, as the worst thing I could ever imagine before he died. In fact, I can remember actually saying to him, if, I, if the Lord gives me two years with me, I will be so grateful. Now, I, I don't have any idea why I said that. It was actually two years and three months that he gave me. But I feared the possibility of losing him. And when he left and 
jumped into that airplane to fly off to Alca territory. He was so excited. He was so absolutely convinced that this was God's will, and so was I. But of course, my heart was just dying inside, thinking, I wonder if he's coming back. Well, he didn't. But you know what? When the worst thing you can ever imagine happens, there's something that was not there in your imaginings, and that is the grace of God. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the trials increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. And I would not be standing here before you today if that were not true. There is a peace that passes understanding. There is no human explanation. He wants us to be instruments. Are you willing for the honing process? Some of you are experiencing that right now. I know of at least one person in this room who's had a hammer blow 20 months ago. The honing of the instrument is all part of God's plan. He chooses the place. He furnishes the grace. And to go back to this little summary that I've tried to write out of my great desire to get these things across, God's loving care has placed you and me exactly where we can best receive the gift of grace, which is the gift of himself. Are you trying to find God? He's here. Nearer to us than breathing, nearer than hands or feet, as the old hymn says. You don't have to go anywhere to find him. He's waiting for you to call on him. Is your heart willing to accept where you are now? Some of you are, have spent your whole lives aiming at something that God has never given you, praying for something that he's never said yes to, Wishing you were somewhere else, wishing you were married to somebody else, wishing you had somebody else's job, somebody else's house, somebody else's church. But it's here where God has put you, within the context that he wants us to learn to know him and to be instruments. If you love him, you will say, yes, Lord. You will accept the conditions of your life. And acceptance is the route to peace. People say, how did you handle Jim's death? How did you handle Ad's death? I can't handle it. I accept it. I say, Lord, I hand over my unmanageable feelings. I give them to you, Lord. And I say, yes, Lord. I will accept the gift of widowhood. It's your gift. This is the place in which you want me to glorify you and to be an instrument of peace. Now let's remember, we don't know what's good, what's good for us. We have our own very clear ideas of what we need. And we hammer on God's door, demanding that the Lord do this for us. This is the one thing in my life that's got to be changed. This is the one thing I've got to have, which is, of course, what happened back in the Garden of Eden. There was only one thing in that whole garden that Eve was convinced she had to have to complete her happiness. And it was the one thing that God knew would be the ruination of her and the rest of the world. And so God's answer, God said, no, 
And she said, I'm going to have it anyway. We'll never be instruments of peace until we have found the peace of God by acceptance of the place in which God has put us, the husband or the wife that God has given us, or the singleness that God has given us, which we never would have asked for. He will give us the grace so that we can leave with him our fears of the future. Just this past week, somebody sent me two horrifyingly frightening articles about Alzheimer's disease. And I have one friend who is taking care of another now who has Alzheimer's, so I feel very, fairly close to this. And another friend recently died of it. And to me, it, it is the most horrifying thing I can imagine dying of because of what it does to your loved ones. And right away, I found myself being afraid. I am 66 years old. I'm going to be 67 in December. I am losing my memory a little bit. Is it Alzheimer's? You know, who, who of us can cannot think about that? And the Lord just reminded me, give me your fears. I'll be there. I will furnish the grace, not only for you, if this is what my plan is for you, but also for the people that are going to have to cope with what has to be coped with. I will give them the grace. Our imaginations never contain the grace. That's the missing element. We get so scared, so worried, so anxious, so uptight. The grace will be there. I can look back over all these years and think there has never been a time when the grace wasn't there. But it's there in the measure we need it. Grace to help in time of need. Not grace for your dreams, not grace for your imaginations. Grace when it's really needed. It will be there. Which brings me back to this second chapter of, of this fourth chapter of Second Corinthians again, and a wonderful lesson that God taught me when I was living with those Indians several years later, the ones who had killed my husband. Lars, can I ask you right now how much time I have because I've lost track myself? Fifteen minutes, thank you. The Indians were, as I said, very primitive. They were Stone Age people, so of course they had no metals of any kind. They killed people with wooden spears, and they killed monkeys with poison-tip poison darts and blowguns, and they cooked in clay pots. And the women and the girls all knew how to make these beautiful clay pots. It was just the simplest thing in the world to them. They, they rolled these snakes of clay, and then all they did was just pinch them around in a circle. And for the life of them, they could not imagine why I couldn't do this. They were always trying to get me to do what any normal 10-year-old girl would be able to do perfectly. Weave a hammock? No, I didn't know how to weave a hammock. Can you catch fish with your hands? No, I couldn't catch fish with my hands. Well, my daughter was three years old. She learned to catch fish with her hands when she was about three years old in about one week. Well, how about pots? Do you know how to make a clay pot? No, I don't know how to make clay pots. Well, we'll show you. So they rolled the snakes of clay for me. They handed them to me. They showed me all you have to do is just pinch them around in a circle and you come out with this beautiful, symmetrical, smooth pot with this lovely design. Well, you can imagine what mine looked like. Lumps and holes and cracks and everything else. So to them, I was an absolute freak and a liability. They thought I had to be seriously retarded because they had never heard of anything human that didn't speak the Alka Indian language. So there, we, there I was, living in a house with no walls, no floors, no furniture, thatched roof, six poles. And here I read this 
wonderful passage, 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, and I like Philip's translation better, knocked down, but never knocked out. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. An instrument of peace is a person in whose mortal body the life of Jesus is visible, in whose life the peace of the Lord pervades. What kind of a difference does Jesus Christ make in your life? He will give you the grace. He will proceed with his honing and shaping process. And at each stage, we must be saying, yes, Lord, I'll take it. You can imagine that when I knew my second husband had cancer, I began dialogues with God. Lord, do we have to go through this lesson again? Did I flunk the test? You wouldn't take him away from me, would you? And the Lord said, I might. Trust me. But it's the little things, you know, the little things that we never think about God dealing with us. We, we, we forget all about the fact that the chippings of the chisel and the honing are just as important as the hammer blows. That impossible person that you have to work with in your church, in your home, in your workplace, just, it's like a rasp against your personality. You can't stand him or her. And you think, I've got to get out of this. We've got to get rid of this person. What's it about? If we're Christians, God is at work. He wants us to be instruments of his peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, and especially if the injury happens to be to me, I am supposed to be the one who does the pardoning. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sadness, joy. Where there is darkness, light. And then we come down to this third point, which is the transfiguration of our lives. And that second part of St. Francis's prayer is of desperate need to us today because it, too, totally contradicts what modern psychology is telling us. Teach me not so much to seek to be consoled as to console. And I hear people saying, how am I going to console somebody else until I get consoled myself? Well, you know, when Jim died, I didn't have anybody consoling me. There wasn't another person, there wasn't another white person anywhere near within walking distance or any other kind except airplane, except my 10-month-old daughter. She wasn't a whole lot of consolation as far as being verbal. 
she was a wonderful gift from God and, and a great consolation, as all you mothers know a tiny baby can be. But it wasn't as though I was expecting anybody to surround me and prop me up and hold me up and all that. I had work to do, and I had work to do for other people. And this was my salvation. This was therapy. God was saying, this is your job today. Do this for those people. Give these shots. Give them the more medicine. Teach them how to read. Go down and visit them in their homes. All the things that constituted my missionary work had to go on, and of course I had twice as much to do as I'd had before because Jim wasn't there anymore to do his half. And I know that this is what God wants for us. We don't sit around waiting till we are consoled because that would be a full-time job. Wouldn't it? See, teach me not so much to seek to be consoled as to console. And in my second husband's illness and those horrifying nights when I would lie awake thinking what terrible mutilations the doctors were going to do next. It wasn't just the idea of death, it was all the awful things that they were talking about before death that would keep me awake. And I just felt as though, Lord, I haven't got the strength to get myself out of this bed tomorrow morning and take care of that man. And the Lord brought it to my mind to pray that the Lord would give me strength to give to somebody else. And a young woman who had a very very ill little child, four years old, with a uh, congenital heart disease, she said, you know, I could make a career out of my child's suffering. And she said, I have prayed that the Lord would make me an instrument of peace for other people. She was an instrument of peace to me in my husband's illness. And that tremendous truth gripped my heart. It says in Isaiah 58:10, if you pour out your soul, for the hungry. God will satisfy your need. And you will become like a watered garden. We are meant to be wounded healers. We're all hurt, aren't we, in one way or another. We are all hurting in one way or another. And it is in that very place that the Lord wants to make us broken bread and poured out wine. He wants to transfigure our selfishness into self-giving. Teach me not so much to seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood. My husband doesn't understand me. Guess what? I don't understand him either. We don't understand ourselves. How can we expect our husbands to understand us, us women? You know, we women don't understand you men. You men don't understand us women. God understands us. Teach me not so much to seek to be understood as to understand. Lord, help me to understand Lars. I don't have to be constantly fussing with the Lord because Lars doesn't understand me. To be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. Do I need love? God loves me. My God shall supply all your need. That's what the Bible says. All of it. If I don't have it, I don't need it because God will give it to me in his time, and I have to let God be the judge of what I need. I have so many more things to say, and I can see that my time is running down. We must fulfill the law of sacrifice for others by being this clay pot. Remember, I have nothing in myself. 
But the Lord has given me the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it is this treasure that I have in an earthen vessel. The earthen vessel is this aged body. And it is in this one and only aging body that God wants me to glorify him. And in the place where he has put me. And that's exactly what he wants to do with you. We're clay pots. But if you've seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, then you can offer that to somebody else. Now, those Indians had no idea why I was staying there with them. They thought I didn't like my own country, so I came to live with them because I wanted to live in a nice place. <laughs> they couldn't understand anything about the way I did things. I was a giant. I was a freak. I was a foot taller than the tallest woman and about a head taller than the tallest man. They'd never seen anything human with blue eyes. They said I looked like a jaguar. They'd never seen anything with light-colored hair. They said it looked like palm fiber. They, there was no clue that I had something priceless to offer them. It wasn't medicine. They never got sick till we went in there. It wasn't education. They'd never heard of such a thing. It wasn't better food or better living conditions. They were perfectly healthy and perfectly happy, relatively speaking. I was a clay pot, and the Lord reminded me that I would never be anything but, but I have a priceless treasure. He wants to transfigure your life and mine, and I cannot bear in my body the life of Jesus without the willingness to bear also the death. The death of Jesus we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death. In other words, there are always opportunities for that crucifixion of myself every day. Always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. It's not for nothing. So that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Can your neighbors see it? Can your wife see it? Can your husband see it? Can your children see it? The scripture says that the older men are to teach the younger men. And the older women are to teach the younger women. My question everywhere I go is, where are these older women that are teaching the younger ones? Riding around in RVs, out on a cruise, going back to get a degree, looking for a job, learning underwater macrame. <laughs> Disobedience to God. You older men are meant to be instruments of peace, to demonstrate what the life of Jesus is to the younger men. And if you are 20 years old, you are an older man because there's a 15-year-old looking up to you. Not one of us is exempt. Lord, Make me an instrument of thy peace. To seek not so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to love, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, 
The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. 